0: Moving right along. So, thank you all for coming. And um, I just especially thank Indra Lamani Mani and her beautiful daughter Shamali for bringing some food for us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Nice spiritual food, thank you very much. So, today is a special day, first of all, because we're alive, and also because uh, today is what we call a Disappearance Day of uh, two great souls, Bhaktivinoda Thakur and Gadadhar Pandit. So I'm going to explain very briefly who they are and what a Disappearance Day is. Uh, in spiritual circles, uh, there's the understanding that we are spiritual. We're not merely bio-machines. We are actually eternal souls. That's what it means to, to be spiritual—to understand that you are a spirit. And so, uh, therefore, in spiritual circles, when a great soul, someone who self-realized, someone that actually understood themselves to be an eternal being, when they pass away from this world, uh, we don't say that they merely died, because, of course, it's the body that dies, not the person. And therefore, we in, in India, it's called Tidobhava. Uh, tiro tirobhava means to to disappear from our sight that someone disappears from our sight and and they call it also uh, tirobhava mahotsava a great festival because it's in a sense we although we miss the a person a great soul who was passed from this world at the same time we celebrate their their victory their glory in having lived a successful spiritual life and moving on to their uh, certain elevation. So, uh, therefore we say disappearance date. And Haktibino um, Thakur, well, go, but we'll do it chronologically. Gadadhar Pandit uh, was a personal associate, intimate, actually childhood friend of Lord Chaitanya's, which means he was born at the end of the 1400s. And, of course, Lord Chaitanya is accepted within Vodhya Vaishnava circles as Krishna's, you know, latest, greatest appearance in this world. In the, the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, one of the most, actually one of the most famous verses from the Gita, which every Indian knows, as soon as you start saying it in Sanskrit, they all join in. Yada dharmasya, pavati, bharata, abhutanam, dharmasya, sajamiyam. Which means that whenever... Dharma, uh, the sacred principles of life, whenever Dharma is uh, waning, collapsing, and Adharma, which is the opposite, the principles of, uh, in other words, when people act not according to noble principles of fairness and compassion and uh, for the good, of themselves and others, but when people act simply out of lust or greed, envy, and they act destructively and harmfully, that's called adharma. So the Gita says, avyutana madharmasya. It's actually, I'll just take a little linguistic detour here, just for a second, because Sanskrit is so interesting. It's um, abhi. Abhi in Sanskrit is a prefix which has a sense of something which is direct, like even direct against something, and then ut is up. And uh, tanam is, is from the Sanskrit root stan, stand, our English word stand. Sanskrit's name, Indo European language. And so, abhi literally, when something is standing up or rising in a, sort of in an aggressive way. That's literally abhi And so, an adharma is growing in an aggressive way, a dharma. Then Krishna says, tadat manang sajamihan, then I manifest myself in this world. It's sort of like a service contract that Krishna has with the universe. A warranty that, uh, where he comes and makes sure things are going well. So, uh, according to this understanding, Krishna appeared about, well, 1486. That's no longer, that's 500 and... uh Still, do the math at my age. Twenty-nine years ago, five hundred twenty-nine years ago, Lord Chaitanya appeared as, as Krishna, and um, one of and, and started this whole movement, which is spreading all around the world now of uh, Krishna consciousness or Bhakti yoga. And one of his dearest childhood friends was Gadadhar, pundit, who was a great soul, and who accompanied Lord Chaitanya and participated in all of his activities during his life of Teaching, re-teaching. It said that Krishna taught Bhagavad Gita, but people didn't quite get it. So he came again, to again explain it, and to show by example how to be a servant of the Lord, how to serve God. Because in this narcissistic age we live in, of course, people would rather be God. Although, if you look at the job description, I personally don't know anyone on earth that's really up to it. So like that movie what was it called um Bruce Almighty
1: the Jim Carrey (laughs)
0: movie Uh, that kind of like says it all so so that's Gadadhar Pundit and then Bhaktivino Thakur uh was born around I think 1838 and passed away in 1914 he was of course born within the British Empire just a few years actually before the the British Crown formally took over management of South Asia from the British East India Trading Company. It's amazing that um, Ayn Rand, of course, would have loved this, but that for over a century a, a private corporation actually managed a good portion of the world. But anyway, so Bhakti Otakar was born in that British uh, ruled India, and uh, he was born in. Uh, West Bengal, which is significant because that was the capital, that's where the British first arrived, and that's where they stood up their initial base in India, and that became their capital in India, Calcutta, their and uh, sort of their Asian capital. And uh, the Bengali people in general are kind of known in India for having certain artistic or intellectual abilities, and so because of the British presence and because of the natural abilities of the people there, there was a a significant group of young indians who were educated who were intellectual who were sort of negotiating this tension between their loyalty to their own families and their own history and tradition and at the same time um wanted to be modern and were kind of or were, were very seduced by the new technologies you have to understand if you're living in a little village and just you know somewhere out in the in India, you're living in just some little village where there's no electricity, and suddenly here come the British with their printing presses and railroads and great, you know, great universities like Oxford and Cambridge. And so all this science and industry and, and intellectual firepower—it was pretty overwhelming, actually, for a lot of uh, young people in India, especially even older people. And so there was a group called the Badraloka, which kind of means you know the good people, or the—but they were a group of. They were Indians, many of them young, all the educated intellectual, were kind of at the forefront of this uh, experience of trying to deal with these two worlds. And Bhakti Nhatak was, was a member of that group. And he knew, he knew all the uh, leading people of his time, all the great intellectuals you read about in history books. And so he became a great devotee, a great um, follower of Lord Chaitanya. Bhakti Nhat, also in his material career, he was a high court judge. He was highly educated. Became a judge. He um, he was a great poet. I think you have to say a great poet. And he wrote poetry in three different languages. So try that. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, I, I can get, I can find a restaurant, you know, in French or something, but but he actually wrote serious poetry in three languages, uh, which were English, Bengali, and Sanskrit. So another quality of his was that he was extremely uh, humble, despite his high position and material success and spiritual success. He was very humble, very self-effacing. He wrote his poetry, often as sort of uh, lamenting that he, his own faults, but, but not in a way that comes off as tacky and like making a show of humility. It's, it's, it's very deep and, and powerful. And uh, historically, he sort of revived Lord Chaitanya's movement because over time, in in the centuries, intervening between, say, three centuries between the time that Lord Chaitanya left this world and Bakhtinotakur appeared in it, uh, Lord Chaitanya's mission had really fallen on hard times in the sense that it was misunderstood, it was sort of hijacked by unscrupulous people, and all kinds of things happened. So when all the dust cleared, let's say, in the mid-1800s, there was not much going on. It pretty much was near extinction and so he uh, very powerfully revived it and turned it into a vibrant relevant uh, movement and then his son bhakti siddhanta of course spread it all over india and even uh, made initial attempts to to bring it to the west and europe and then bhakti siddhanta's disciple you could say the grand disciple of bhakti vinod tapur is prabhupada our own teacher and the one who started the the krishna consciousness movement so there's this um Amazing lineage, and um, so today is disappearance day of both uh, Gadadhar Pandit and Takor. And now I also got a request for a topic today, which I'll read from one of our distinguished guests here, Emily, Dr. Emily. And uh, it's a really good topic, and I want to tie it into Bafyanotakur, Gadadhar Pandit. Here, so here's the topic. Uh, in our culture, Vaishnav culture, it's always stressed not to commit offense, not because when you're living with and working with, let's say, spiritual people, you don't want to offend them, because inevitably as human beings we get impatient, we become irritated. Like, why the heck did you do that? And yet, so there's, there's in, in a sense, there's a potential in a spiritual community to commit heavier offenses, because you may offend someone who's actually really... A spiritual person, and that's that's not a good thing. So, at the same time, so here here's the question, the topic was as it was posed. So that's called uparad. Uparad means offense. So, I'd like to understand this topic of offense better and how it relates to criticism. How can a critical person overcome such tendencies so as not to uh, wreck the potential for advancement, while at the same time not being a passive, silent doormat? What do you do for a living? I'm a dormant. What? So how can we actually overcome? How can we actually overcome the tendency to criticize and defend? And I was saying like, unfortunately, there's all these you know really fun things that you can't do like criticize others. So, so how do we overcome this tendency? So I would like to talk about. It. I started with the dictionary, which predictably was not so helpful. But in the dictionary, the the sort of mediocre. Uh, Google dictionary the definition of offense is uh, is quite subjective to break a rule or law so there can be like illegal, like like an, like you committed an offense like a, like a driving offense or something to violate what is judged to be right or neutral to violate what is judged to be right I'm sorry or natural right or natural So, at the same time, we do see real flaws out there, and sometimes uh, we see injustice. Sometimes we see people acting in ways that are harmful to themselves or others. Like if you see someone about to fall off a cliff, and you say, well, I don't want to tell him what to do. Yeah, but he's about to fall off a cliff. Or what if you see someone, for example, uh, acting abusively by speech or in some way toward other people? So the idea of just don't be judgmental, it sounds good. And there is such a thing as being judgmental in the sense of criticizing too much or really like just obsessively criticizing others. And I always say that some of the most judgmental people I've ever met are the ones that tell everybody not to be judgmental. They never seem to note that irony. So how can you be a rational human being How can you see what's really out there? Don't be blind. Don't be a doormat. See the truth, even speak the truth when it's necessary to prevent significant harm or to promote significant good. How can you do all that and yet not commit offense? So that's the topic. I made a few little notes here. I usually don't, but I thought since we're filming, I probably don't want to be end up speechless. Um there is a there's a connection between our own purity and uh our ability to inoffensively criticize in other words one can speak the truth in an offensive manner for example let's say i see someone actually doing something wrong let's say someone is is uh... well typical thing for santa monica i'm in a crosswalk and someone doesn't stop that's happened to me probably about fifty times and every single time it's someone in an expensive car anyway so so let's say someone's doing that so therefore i you know shout out profanities and and you know take out a sledgehammer, I carry my, you know, smash the person's windshield. (laughs) I mean, mean, clearly, someone can do something wrong, and you can say something, but it can be done offensively. So the more my heart is still tainted by envy, the more there's still envy in my heart. And envy means that I sort of, it makes me unhappy to see someone else succeed, and it makes me happy to see someone else fail. Because I think in some perverse way that it's promoting me. I mean, as ugly as it sounds, it's, it's kind of a bit. I mean, every, I think it's a question of degree. It, it would be very hard for someone to say that I am absolutely free from even the tiniest trace amount of envy. That would be a stretch for anyone, I think, to say that there's, I mean, I'm absolutely free of it. But of course, we can have it in, in, in small amounts, and, and we control it so we don't offend other people. But the more, the more we truly, truly are only acting for the good of another person. There's no pride. There's no envy. It's truly there's nothing in the heart but love and beneficence. Actually, benevolence, I should say, wishing the good. There's nothing but benevolence and and true compassion or kindness in the heart. And we say, but then again generally people who are truly free of i guess malevolence is the opposite people who are truly free of malevolence and envy and pride because of that purity they will also see more clearly krishna draws a krishna draws a connection in the bhagavad gita between the purity of the heart and the mind and one's understanding of reality. In other words, it's it's just like water. If water is pure, it's transparent. And to the degree water is impure, it's generally not transparent. There are, of course, certain, you know, really nasty toxins that somehow don't disturb the transparency of the water. But still, in general, in general, the water, the more the water is polluted, the less transparent it is. So the more our hearts and minds are pure the more transparent they'll be and therefore we will see how to speak in a way that doesn't offend the person and yet speak the truth and Christian does say also in the Gita that um, there's an austerity of speech austerity means acting for what is best and not just out of self-indulgence like for example I may want to shout at someone just because I'm angry and my lower self is rearing its head but I perform the austerity of self-control I realize no that's not a good thing to do it's not appropriate it's not good for me it's not good for the other person therefore I control myself so here the word austerity is being used and it's a very common word in all these spiritual texts it basically means that you do not indulge your immediate desire based on a higher understanding that to do so, to indulge yourself, would not ultimately benefit you or other people and could even harm yourself or other people. And therefore, we control ourselves and we give up that impulse. And so that's what I mean by austerity. So Krishna says that austerity of speech is to speak, first of all, what is true, but also what is beneficial. For example, I could tell you something like, how many towels are hanging in my bathroom and what colors they are. and I don't know, for some eccentric reason, someone might find that interesting. But So it, it would be true, but it's not necessarily going to make the world a better place. And there's all kinds of trivia you could speak. So it should not only be true, satyam in Sanskrit, but hitham, also beneficial. We should say things that are not only true, but also beneficial. And priyam, pleasing. You know, a little bit of sugar makes the medicine go down so um, so there's a situation where someone may do something wrong and even something wrong something which is not merely wrong but is harmful to themselves or others and yet if my motivation if my urge to speak my my if my righteous anger is really self-righteous anger and I'm speaking to indulge my own envy and pride, then, even in speaking the truth, I may injure myself, just as I may injure others, because I am... You see the point? It's. I mean, there, there's a sense in modern culture which... I suppose technically we could imagine a crasser, more vulgar culture, but you'd have to think about it for a while. So in the modern world... Um, you know it's like this gotcha thing if you made a mistake and I, and, you're, and I caught you then I can just you know shout it from the rooftops and and you by, by virtue of the mistake you've made or done something wrong you've been stripped of all dignity you deserve no respect nothing you should just be annihilated publicly because you did something wrong and by doing that we are protecting the public from you know it's transparency or something I mean, obviously, some truths have to come out, but there is a sense in the modern world that if you get someone, if you catch someone doing something wrong, then they're just fair game for anything. So, also, another point I I wanted to make is that um, we have to make allowance for imperfection. In other words, some mistakes are not really destroying the world, and we all make mistakes. I have a friend that said, I only made one mistake in my life. One time. I thought I was wrong but I wasn't.
1: <laughs> he
0: was joking. So, um, so we all make mistakes and and also are how should I put it? It's like I mean people are different levels spiritually so for example let's say a child is playing and the child is just not so confident. I mean the child is trying to I don't know, assemble something, some toy, or trying to play music on a little keyboard or something and so you barge in and push it. get out of the way, kid. You don't know how to do that. You know, I'll do it. And the point is that children have to give it space and time and encouragement to gradually learn things. And so there's a sense in which uh, people are spiritual children. And uh, there are mistakes that people make, but th- it may be a case where, let's say, God is taking care of that person or someone else is responsible. And so it's just not my job to barge in and attack that person, but just to give them space to, to learn and to grow on their own way. It may not be my duty. So the real question sometimes, especially the same in a spiritual community, one question you have to ask yourself is, is is it really going to please God? Is it going to please Krishna if I criticize that person? Because ultimately whatever I do, I'm trying to please Krishna. I'm trying to please God. So is it really pleasing to God that I intervene here? Is it a duty that God has given me? To intervene, and um, how significant is the harm? And obviously, if you see someone about to do something really harmful, sometimes you got to just step in. But but in cases more where you just see people like I don't like the way you're doing your job, or this or that, is it really my duty? And you have to ask, and you have to be convinced in your heart, in your purest heart, not in the, not not in, in, in let's say in my passion or or pride, but I. to find somehow or other find my that pure part of me which is there and ask is this really beneficial my intervention is this really a duty i have Does, does god want me to do this and by doing it am i actually acting for the good of everyone including myself so there's another point which is totally not understood nowadays i think well, it, it's understood to some extent. To some extent, the modern world understands it. And I don't mean to take this point too far to an irrational extreme. It's just one factor in many. and that is the necessary to preserve the necessity of preserving legitimate hierarchies. Uh, despite the very powerful egalitarian ethos of our society, the fact is that there are natural hierarchies. For example, in the press, there are certain ways, that one could say criticize the president. Where even people who don't support the president would think you're really you're going too far. You're 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 just destroying all the dignity of the office. And and there are certain natural structures in life. For example, parents. Parents may make mistakes, but if the parents are, let's say, overly humiliated or overly castigated, even by their children, it really starts to be an attack on certain natural forms or hierarchies in life we're not talking about parents let's say who are totally incompetent and and the children need urgently to be taken away put in a foster care home or something but let's say just a mistake so there's there's the there's the balance of speaking the truth not allowing abuse certainly we're not talking about abuse here we're not talking about harmful abuse we're just talking about mistakes and so there's a sense in of course, if you look at the, the the distinction between the West and the East, uh, who was it? Kipling said, east, "East is East and West is West, and never the twain shall meet." Uh, he never, obviously, never watched India's Got Talent on TV. But but if you go back in history, if you go back in history, even certainly the time of Alexander, even before Alexander, I mean, really the the earliest systematic, documented contacts between East and West, you could say maybe or <clears throat> going back to the great battles between Greece and Persia two and a half thousand years ago. And there's always this mutual perception that from the point of view of the West, they they really prized individuality and don't trust anyone. And that's why democracy, of course, arose in Athens. And so from the point of view of the West, the people in the East were obsequious. They was like bowing and scraping to their leaders, they were mindless followers. And, and so the West had that opinion of the East, this is going back thousands of years. And, the, and for the people in the East, the Westerners were kind of like barbarians. They were crude, they were, they just had no respect for things that should be respected. And um, so anyway, you see this very clearly in the, because the, the, the sort of like the border between East and West in ancient times was of course Greece and Persia. And, and they were battling each other for centuries. You know, the marathon, the Great Battle of Marathon. If you watch your, I'm sure none of you would ever miss a Brad Pitt movie. And so I'm sure you saw that thing about Troy. So anyway, um, and then of course with Alexander. It, it, but um, so there has to be a balance. Obviously one can be obsequious. You can go too far and just be so submissive and humble and respectful of authority that just, you know, that it just creates havoc and, and all kinds of evil things happen in the world. On the other hand, one can be so self-righteous and individualistic that you just become a menace to civilization. And you just destroy the very principle of respect and dignity in the world. And we're just left with, you know, something worse. So, getting back to the topic of offense, um, and just to wrap this up, I would say the main principle, which, which sort of is the framework for the other principles, is to understand oneself and to understand everyone else as a spiritual being. And to understand as much as we might like to be God ourselves, we haven't really got the skill set. And the idea, the idea of wanting to become God by meditation is kind of, you can't be serious. It's like first of all, it, it, it involves all kinds of crazy philosophical problems. Like if you're God, how did you get in this mess I mean how could God because everyone agrees in terms of the uh, certainly this Vedic culture that at the present time we are to some extent covered by illusion We are not seeing everything that's out there we're not in perfect consciousness God is actually everywhere we ourselves are souls eternal souls we're not really seeing ourselves we're not seeing other people as they ultimately really are past the body and we're not seeing God. And so therefore, to some extent, as Krishna says, abritam gyanam me that we are covered. Consciousness is covered by kama rupa, by our selfish desires. Same thing Buddha taught, really. You know, the four noble truths. Uh, you're suffering, you're suffering because you're selfish. Stop being selfish and you won't suffer. If you want to stop being selfish, become a Buddhist. You know, join the program. Sign up. So so it's true. I mean, something which was understood not only by Buddha, but, but by all the teachers that... Um, that the more we are selfish, the more we are lusty, greedy and all that, vain, the, the 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 more consciousness shrinks. It just it just covers consciousness. And the more we become pure, loving, selfless, the more consciousness is uncovered, or you could say discovered. And we see things as they really are. So when we see things as as we really we, we are one with God, but we are also less than God because we're not infinitely conscious like God. And so it's natural that we serve God as the hand serves the body. Krishna says in the Gita, Mama Jiva Lokai Jiva bhuta Sanatana, that the eternal living being is part of me. And so as the hand is part of the body, let's say the hand goes on strike, I'm not gonna give the food to the, you know, the mouth. Why does the mouth get to taste all the food? Why does the stomach get to digest? I'm just gonna... So even if you have the most powerful hand in the world, like you could have a like you can pulverize, you know, I don't know, granite in your bare hands or something but still you can't eat your hands don't digest that's not, not what they do the hand feeds itself by feeding the body that's how hands feed themselves because the hand is part of the body so in the same way we please ourselves we nourish ourselves by pleasing god because we're part of god and so in the act of pleasing god We are actually pleasing ourselves, and we are actually, it's like watering the root of the tree. God, you could say, or Krishna, is the root of all existence. And so, there's a funny word in Sanskrit. Sanskrit is full of puns and jokes, but people don't get it. They think it's all, like, very somber and grave in Sanskrit. But Anyway, so, in, like, one name for a tree is a padapa, which means a foot drinker. Trees drink through their feet, you know, their roots. So, you can say, no, that's not democratic. We should give equal amounts of water to the branches, the twigs, the leaves. You know, it's more egalitarian, the zeitgeist. But trees don't drink that way. Trees drink to their roots. And so, if we, by, by serving God, we're actually serving ourselves because we're part of God. So, if in every act we just consider, and Krishna says that in the Gita, Jet Kuroshi, whatever you do, Tat Kurusha make that an offering to me. So if we see, understand our lives correctly as an offering to God, then before criticizing, we should think, is this really a service? And it may be. It may be, there are times when, when you know, we are called upon, as they say, to speak truth to power. You know, you know the typical thing, the old, uh, New old Testament prophets speaking truth to power. It may, it may just, we may be called upon. God may actually want us to step forward because the truth has to be spoken. But we should really verify and make sure check our motives, why am I doing this? Am I doing it really because I'm convinced in, in, in my my rational, pure side, not my passionate, impulsive side, angry side, but my pure spiritual nature is telling me that Krishna really wants me to do this. This is really service. And, and I, I'm not taking pleasure. I'm not happy because I'm criticizing someone else or putting someone else down. It's really just a service that, that I've been called upon to do. So in in that way, one has to be satisfied in one's own conscience. You have to make sure you're not causing more harm than good. You're not, uh, let's say, for a debatable benefit. Will the criticism do its job? If I make this criticism, will I make the world better? Or is it just something I want to get it out? Is it really going to improve the world? Is is it going to make my life worse, someone else's lives worse? So in in that way, it just has to be a um, a pure, clear-headed, Beneficial act where you're sure that it's really your duty, and of course, in cases of serious abuse and and significant harm, and obviously, if you can stop it, you have to stop it. So, any questions on these points? Yes.
2: So, um, I was thinking, well, in Christianity, you have the Pope that supposedly is infallible in Catholicism, right? And then, like in Vedic culture, we have spir- the spiritual master who is a representative of God, and, and we believe that God speaks through them. So my question would be like, um, so there is a hierarchy, and you know, which we have to respect. Now, in, in the spiritual master, what, what would it be seen as offensive if um, the disciple disagrees with with some instructions or some ways that he may have to, in managerial ways, right?
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prabhupada made clear in his own teachings that the spiritual master is speaking, or the guru is speaking infallibly, if and only if. The guru is simply humbly repeating what Krishna said, or or, or let's say there are certain sources we have, Shastra, say scripture that we accept as sacred texts. And so in those areas, the guru, if he's just repeating... A, a, recognized authority, then we accept it. Prabhupada never claimed, in fact, he, he disclaimed, that a spiritual teacher is just infallible in every area, even like, I think mean, it's going to rain tomorrow. What? I don't think so. No, I'm the guru. It's going to rain tomorrow. And, and this creates kind of all kinds of comical situations. I mean, I mean you know, that's, who needs Monty Python when you're part of a religious organization? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But, so you get these. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, mean, so it's really important that a spiritual teacher, a guru, know their own boundaries. In other words, I'm a guru, that doesn't mean automatically that I'm an expert financial advisor, or marriage, marital advisor, or, manager so the problem is if a guru thinks that because I'm a guru therefore everything I say is true about everything it's uh, they just don't understand their job and it's almost like there's something ironic about it because if you're surrounded by people who are always like telling you oh, you're so great and then you, you know you start to believe your press and so yeah and you can become a little loopy so yeah so it's very important so a guru, should not, how should I say, exploit that position or misunderstand the position and claim that all of his or her statements on every subject are infallible when they're actually not. So
2: um, I guess maybe we would have to distinguish between spiritual advice and maybe practical material advice yeah. They're separate things from a spiritual leader. They are different. And I know
0: myself, just by experience, you know, guru school of art mm-hmm. hard that, knocks, um, that when you're advising people, even people who are disciples, uh, it's, you really just you just sort of talk and discuss it and, and just between, you know try to come to a mutual understanding or see what's best. Mm-hmm. But you can't... I can't try to invoke the power of a guru... I'm just telling somebody, I think you're majoring the wrong subject in school or you should change jobs. Or I mean, certain things, there are times when people around us, and certainly a guru, can just see that you're harming yourself. And it's just obvious. It's not, there's really no mistaking it, that you're doing something which is not good for you. And so someone may tell you that. And so it doesn't mean we can't go to the other extreme and say that, I mean, someone that cares about me, and that may be a wise person, may actually see things that are real. So I think there has to be balance. Like everything else, there has to be balance. You can't go too far to one side or the other. Yes?
3: Well, if you have the pure intention Mm -hmm. to be of service and to benefit another, but if you don't do it in the right way, it can be demanding and bossy and critical. So it sounds like from your talk that if it, this isn't done in a pure spiritual way, it can hurt the person that's demanding and, in some respects, damning the person that does certain things that they don't agree with.
0: Yeah, it's very true. Uh, someone may, yeah, exactly as you put it.
3: Even the motive is love.
0: Well, I would say that. The motive may be partially love. I I think that when there's really pure consciousness, Mm -hmm. then the tendency is to... I mean, it's possible. I I suppose you could say that someone's acting out of pure love but just got the facts wrong or just doesn't have enough experience in that area. I, I suppose we can't... I mean, love doesn't make one omniscient. And so, even if someone has pure love for you, they still may not be omniscient. And that's why I think it's um, when someone wields power in a relationship—be parents and children, it could be you know spouses, it can be teacher and student, it's just any relationship where someone has some power over the other person uh we have to be very careful and remember that our experience and knowledge of the world is limited and we we can we can certainly speak with certainty about spiritual principles but in the application to worldly situations uh yeah we have to be careful and for example we may say to someone is is, you know, I think this is best for you based on my experience and based on what I see here. I think this is best for you and and in saying that I may be right. I'm not necessarily wrong. I may actually get it right. But we just have to, I think we just can't browbeat people and sort of, you know, try to bludgeon them into submission.
3: Mm-hmm. My mother always used to say, you may be right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, you it is. You should always remember because it gives the other person grace.
0: Yeah, yeah.
4: Um, I think this can tie in also to a little earlier when we were saying about uh, how to, the best, most efficient way to uh, spread the Krishna consciousness or whatever you do want to share, it, how you have to let the person come to the conclusion on their own because
0: Socratic method.
4: Yeah, when people are told what to do, they, they kind of want to reject it because the, I guess it depends, every situation is different. But the same concept when you want to uh, advise people, you have to find it in a way to do it where, where they can kind of come, feel like they come to the conclusion on their own.
0: Yeah, I, I would say that that's especially true nowadays mm-hmm. because in this age of just like unbridled narcissism, but it's, it's, it's sort of true always. And it, I, there are cases where people say, like, I just need someone to explain this to me.
1: Right.
0: And there are other cases where people are, you know, God help you if you try to tell somebody something. So I would say that, but what you said is certainly true in many cases. So I, I think that this, the best course then would be that advising people, you, we have to take the time to understand something about them and just talk to them a little bit and find out what the market will bear. Mm-hmm.
3: The soul. Each of us has our own soul. And we're coming from our own consciousness. And to inflict ours on theirs, it's mm-hmm. the two will never meet. Unless, it and, it yeah,
1: no, no
0: that's certainly true. As you stated it, if I'm trying to get someone else to take my view, because everyone's unique, it may not work, if, for example, you actually have the good fortune to be empowered so that, um, and I don't mean this in any outlandish extremist way, but let's say God is speaking through you, yes. it may be a case where you speak to someone and they recognize that you're speaking the truth. And that, so, so in that sense, I think the more the more I really care about the other person, the more I don't see myself as above the other person. Even, I mean, a guru that really thinks I'm above my disciples is not really a guru. I mean, technically, the guru may be in a higher, a more advanced state spiritually, but the symptom of a more advanced state is you don't think you're better than other people. And so if I have enough respect for the other person, Really care about what they think and what they need and what they're able to take right now. And so when people, if you're talking to someone, let's say, someone has the good fortune to speak with Shambhali, if, if, let's say you're speaking to someone, and they see that you really, you're not trying to lord it over them, you're not trying to, you know, have power over them, yet you're just a nice person who's, you know, cares about them, and you listen to what they're saying, and let's say you based on your experience based on krishna helping you in the heart in a kind way you just speak the truth Mm -hmm. and people realize it's not your truth it's just the truth like let's say someone stops and says how do i get to the how do i get to you know ucla from here and i tell them it's not my truth it's just that's just the way you get there it's it's that way and it's not just that way for me. And so if we are speaking something which is really true, it's not just my truth. And and we leave them enough space as we were saying to take that in in their own way in their own life according to based on their life experiences and whatever. Because these see there's danger. It's like I always say on every road there's danger. You can go off the road on either side. And so one danger, one side of the road is just basically trying to push people around, you know, and tell them what to do, or this or that, or you got to see things as I see them. But the other danger is slipping into, and this is a danger which the New Age movement is sort of blind to, and that is slipping into a type of irrational subjectivism where everyone just has their own truth, which is absurd, because, I mean, do we all agree we're in Santa Monica right now? I mean, I mean, if everyone just had their own truth, you couldn't have legal systems, you couldn't have law and order, you couldn't have... I mean, you couldn't have anything. You, could, you couldn't have life. So, uh, and, and if there is a God, it, it, sure, everyone sees God in their own way, just as everyone sees the parents in their own way. But that doesn't... But there are certain objective facts about the parents. There may be three or four siblings that all see the parents in their own way, but there's just... There's a whole huge body of objective facts about the parents totally independent of what any particular child thinks or sees and so we don't want to go into extreme subjectivism or sort of abusive authoritarianism
4: but would you say some truths like i know there's the more concrete truths, but would you say some are more abstract so what might be true for one person at that certain stage in their life wouldn't be true for someone else an
0: example please
4: Spiritual or
2: material truth
4: No, either one, because there's some truths that, that are more. Give more an
2: example. Give an example.
4: Uh, I, give an example. Yeah. Um, I have an example that Erma Dasi gave. It's just material, but
2: it kind of illustrates the point. Is that um, you know when you're ch- teaching a child mathematics, first you teach them that you can't subtract numbers from zero. You know that are less than. You can't subtract. You can't have negative numbers. You can't subtract. You know. Five three from, four. from one,
0: for Okay. Example. Okay.
2: But then, when they advance more in their in- intelligence, then they learn that they can have negative numbers. Mm-hmm. And she was using that as an example to describe that people can have, do have different stages in their consciousness and their ability to understand complexity in spiritual
4: life. Right, of so it's course. like someone may be going through a problem, and if like, I try to give someone advice and I'm not an elevated being who's speaking through God, then I'll give them advice that's true for me, but not necessarily true for them. So for me, that advice might be my truth, but- I'm We'll saying, give an example. <sighs> okay. Um, let's say one of my friends uh, maybe having, austerity.
2: performing austerities perhaps, like for someone maybe, yes, you know, yeah, let's say wake a, up early and in their own spiritual runs. life,
4: they might uh, be going through things that I quite, don't quite understand because maybe I haven't gone through. So I'll give them my own version of my truth that has uh, that uh, is applicable to me and like the stage that i'm in but it might not necessarily be for them because like i i guess I...
0: I i get okay here's one thing i would say right away i think we need to maybe adjust the language a little bit because like my truth your truth is a typical modern way of speaking which really is i think um i mean i know what the words mean
4: Maybe okay. Maybe not necessarily truth, its opinions. Or
0: I would just say what's practical for me. For 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 right, for ex- for example, it is, you could say at a certain point in my life, I dropped out of school, or I went to school and it really helped me. Therefore, you should drop out of school or go to school, for example. Right. So that's just what worked for me at a particular time.
4: Right. That's what I was going to. Because I guess I've had like different people like, in your life. They might um, at that point in their life they might have a certain opinion. But then it'll change whatever works for them, and their opinion might change. So they might tell you, I don't know. Uh, like, I remember when we moved here, one uh, one of our friends was like, oh, I don't like Santa Monica, whatever, it's not good. And now she's moving here, she's like, it's great. And, and so you never want to, uh, like, I guess those aren't truths. Those are just uh, what works for people at their stage. And, or opinions, like yeah. In, 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 it's kind of like in the beginning,
2: and when I joined at least, going to college was not seen as a good thing right right was like no you know I and mean, you couldn't read anything unless that it was proper books and well but especially college was seen like oh it's not it's illusion right and then this the gurus who preach that way they end up going to college so
0: Yo nunca he predicado así. right sorry I don't think I ever preached that way. I was the first one to actually break, right, the, where
2: to break the, the,
1: the
0: barrier. Yeah. yeah,
2: That's kind of what I was trying to do. Yeah, that's a good that, example. So you see thing, how though. many Sabbaths maybe didn't go to because you know their their leaders were right. pushing against it, and then maybe they missed the boat, and then all of a sudden... You know, yeah, yeah. So
0: Therefore, I, I think the important issue here is that we have to be intelligent and mature enough to know the difference between right. eternal, immutable spiritual principles like there's a god and god is in our heart and even some details about god it's not that everything specific is subjective which is another great contribution of modern culture but eternal immutable principles and just circumstances right like like in my, so, so there is a type of vanity in thinking that every all the practical details of my life can be universalized for humanity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so to think that and therefore we have to make that distinction. So I may say to someone that I like or don't like this for these reasons, but that's me. Right. Someone else may have completely other needs or preferences. So I think yeah. it's type of vanity uh, of thinking that my own needs or desires or preferences are somehow universal.
1: Superior. Like, yeah, they're
0: universal, they, they apply to everyone. Everyone should, yeah, th- these yeah. are the real tastes. These are the real preferences. We I mean, all slip into that somewhat. I you know, find it mystifying that some people don't get Baroque music. But anyway,
1: so I mean we
0: all have that. But then again, I know myself, because of the line of work I'm in, you know, the spiritual thing. I have to be I have to be circumspect. I have to be disciplined and realize that I have my private life, my personal tastes in music or literature or places to live or weather or this or that and those are just my personal tastes and i can't i have to be conscientious and disciplined and 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 not mix those with advice i'm giving i have to be sure that when i'm talking to people for example for me to invite people to a spiritual program and then start trying to persuade you or impose upon you my personal preferences in you know subjective things would be inappropriate it would be not doing my duty properly
4: and yeah. earlier you had said we, we talked about how to give uh criticism or advice without offending people now how about how to reject advice without offending people like let's say um she's smart it comes she? from it comes from a a spiritual authority and, and maybe you feel that they're giving you their own uh opinion not necessarily a spiritual truth, and how would you go about telling them? Well, you could
0: always you know, say what what in Hollywood, like if you know if if you see someone else's work in Hollywood, and you don't like it so much, and they say, "How do you like you know my, my, what I did there?" And then you say, "It was interesting."
4: <laughs> it was I interesting. tell me that all the time, practically all my stories. He says, "Interesting," but it has different intentions. Interesting, yes. Or interesting.
1: Interesting.
0: I w- I would say that. um Yeah, obviously you have to be true to your own best understanding. Mm -hmm. You don't want to reject something just because someone else told you to do it because what if they're telling you the truth? Like when people say to me, like, what do you do when people criticize you? The first thing I always do is I try to understand if it's true or not. If someone criticizes me, even someone who I know, even someone who I know is ill-intentioned, you know, I, I don't even think maybe is a good person, and they criticize me, the first thing I do is try to honestly understand whether it's correct or not. Because if someone is, you know, is that criticism valid? If it is, then I try to make appropriate adjustments. If it's not valid, whether it's coming from someone that I like or don't like, or I respect or don't respect, if someone criticizes me, that's the main point to me. It's not about me, it's about the truth of the matter. I don't think they have a truth. You see, you see that, that, that's the thing. I don't, I don't agree. Just, I think there's a certain way of talking nowadays, which is not really, it, it's too, I feel it's too self-indulgent. Well, for, for example, let's say someone says to me, let's say, just give an example. Let, let, let's say someone says to me that, oh, you're just doing this because you want to make money. Which is, you know, make money, don't do what I'm doing. But so now, if someone says that, or you're just doing this for some selfish reason, and let's say I know in my heart that's not correct, that's not their truth, that's their illusion.
2: Or their opinion.
0: Oh, it's just their illusion, they're just wrong. Now, certain people can be, all of us can be, including myself. About certain things we can just get it wrong and so if i'm just wrong like for example let's say i criticize someone and we've all had this experience and i find out later uh, that was an unfair criticism so i apologize mm-hmm. that wasn't my truth at the time it was my mistake okay. and so
2: like a butchery of the word
0: truth well yeah I, I think but nowadays there's so much i'll tell you what i what i and I, I'll say what I think is happening from a historical perspective. The world has gone through, especially the Western world, has gone through so much bad religion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And by bad religion, I mean fanatical, offensive, oppressive. I mean, to tell someone else your religion is evil, it's like, that's rude. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's say the person's not a terrorist or something, it's just someone worshipping God in their own way. And so to tell them that you're wrong, you're it's bad, you're worshiping a false god, when you're actually just worshiping God, that is uh, that's evil. I mean that that is more it's 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 terrible. It's offensive. It's abusive. Huh?
1: Disrespectful.
0: Yeah, abusively disrespectful. And so because the Western world just in the last few centuries kind of emerged out of this stranglehold that that these this bad religion had on the culture naturally it's because nature balances you know culture's gone to the other extreme where no one's ever wrong about anything unless someone says that some people are wrong that's you know, the only way you can be wrong is to say that some people are wrong and so and so there, there's this like like I think this like extremely sensitive extremely walking on eggs way of talking about things like where everyone just has their truth but I, I think it's it's just um, I think the real truth is somewhere in the middle yeah
3: I think it's to be true to yourself is the bottom line because uh, it risks if I was trying to help someone right but I have my truth about their situation but that's not going to help them What's going to help them is for them to see the truth of their situation. However, I don't...
0: I can bring what I have right. to the table. But I'm trying to understand what you mean, you have your truth about their situation.
3: No. Because if you're not in a situation... I'm in a totally different world.
0: I'm sorry. No, no but what I, what I mean to say is, let's say, for example, someone... Like I always say, the only thing worse... about the, the only When you get sick, the only thing worse than the illness is all the advice you get.
1: <laughs>
0: and so... So let's say, for example, that someone is ill and their friends are giving them advice
1: mm-hmm. about
0: what you need to do. I don't think that, like, they have a truth, like your truth, their truth, someone else's truth. I think it's just a question of what are the facts of the matter.
3: How do they feel about it? The person. I think the person has to understand how they feel about their own situation.
0: But they may be wrong. For example, yes, yeah, yeah for, so, so therefore it's not a truth, it's just it, it's a, a mistaken opinion. For example, there, there were times when I was ill and, and, and some people advised me you should take B12. And I said, no, nah, I don't want to take B12. Then it turns out I did need B12. So back then when I said, no, nah, I don't want to take vitamins, it wasn't my truth. It was my mistake. Mm-hmm. And so I think nowadays what's happened in the world is that ontology or 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 just the facts of life have been subordinated to psychology so that because you should never say that someone made a mistake because it might harm their self-esteem right. therefore everyone just has their truth But people actually they make mistakes and so of course obviously you can go to the other extreme and you can you can offend people and you can discourage them and you can all that i think
3: that's a hard isn't that where we started we started out by being critical Of others, to the point of being hurtful, right? And we hurt ourselves. True. So, by
1: being respectful of
3: the other person, uh, and being loving and listening,
0: they can heal themselves.
3: Uh, I don't know. I I uh, don't. I think I'm totally from a different world. No, no.
0: But I mean, I mean, that sometimes happens. That was, you know, Socrates certainly had a lot of success with that method. But, but let's say, for example. I mean, there are cases where people stubbornly won't listen to good advice. For example, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> for example, I know several people, unfortunately, because because I, I, you know, I'm part of a spiritual community. I just know thousands of people. I know several people, actually. Steve Jobs, and I didn't know personally, but apparently, he's in that list also, who uh, died of curable diseases because they had an a, a fanatic allegiance to or belief in natural medicine now Emily is a very good natural path doctor and uh, And so I think natural pathy has a lot of good stuff I mean they they help a lot of people and and they know a lot at the same time as Emily will say there's you know You need different things for different situations and so When people let's say stuck to their I'm gonna do this this way and their intention was not to go down with the ship their intention was to live they wanted to live. That was their real intention. And yet, they made poor choices and therefore died. So I don't see how their mistaken choice was their truth. There's nothing true about it. It was a mistake. And so I think we have, I think we have to be moderate. And we can't subordinate truth to politeness. So like, so it's like, the real point is not to get at the truth. The real point is just to be polite. I mean, I know that we should be, I mean, I agree with you. We should be polite. We shouldn't hurt people. We shouldn't impose things on people. And sometimes, for example, I learned from my teacher and uh, Prabhupada, and and uh, he he enlightened me. I mean, not that I claim to be a great enlightened soul, but he, he taught me so much. He totally transformed my life, completely transformed my life from just being a, you know, just a 20-year-old California hedonist to actually, you know, making something of myself. And so he just told it like it is. He wasn't shy. He was a pure soul. He didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't, there's no question of his offending me. But he just told it like it is. It's this and it's not that. And and that's what I needed. And that's what worked for me. And so, I mean, some people may be so sensitive that you have to just really always, you could never really tell them anything directly. And you have to just sort of, you know, very, in a very tender, tentative way, suggest things and let them discover it. Yeah. But there are people who are not so, let's say, easily offended and who just want someone to just, just tell me the truth, straight out. I
4: think
0: that. Well, I mean, I'm saying no myself. Like when I talk to people, a lot of times I've experience with someone saying, "Well, well, I don't want to offend you, but and and to me, I just want to know what you think. I mean, just t- it's either right. I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll listen and I'll make my best judgment on it. But just tell me, tell me what you think it is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah. So I I don't I I think we should. Res- I absolutely agree. We should respect everyone absolutely we should respect everyone everyone is part of god we should really try hard not to offend anyone not to discourage anyone and and yet people hold a lot of false views for example some people believe that uh... that there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with anyone without any background check just anyone can walk in and buy you know you know an automatic assault weapon and the person may be psychotic the person may have a criminal record, but we don't care about that. Just go buy your assault weapons. And that's their truth. No, that's not their truth. That's their delusion. And and, and the solution is like every teacher in America should you know be armed to the teeth. I mean, can you imagine a, a society in which, and what if a teacher goes crazy and starts shooting the kid? It's just, the, So I mean, these things are crazy. Or if someone thinks their truth is that even if I destroy the environment, even if I destroy the environment, even if I destroy society, I have a God-given right to make money. If I'm producing video games or if I'm producing television programs, and science, you know, not, not wacky science, but reliable science shows that children exposed to this level of violence and this type of violence are damaged. They're damaged in, in very dangerous ways. But I want to make money, and that's my truth. Or I'm going to blow up a school bus. What I just read? Where was it? You know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, where someone, you know, some group just attacked a school. They just went into a school and started shooting people as a political statement. But that's their truth. Mm -hmm. So, that language of dignifying everyone's opinion about everything as a truth, I think, needs to be reined in a little bit. I don't
3: know if truth is the right word. (laughs) Very self small, small thoughts,
0: I oh, yes. Well, you're a good person and one on one with others. No, but you're you're bring out their best and to
3: heal them and bless
0: them. Well you're a very good person and so, and so you probably see the way
3: they get to that is how do they really feel. Not how I feel, but how do they really feel? So that I well, can I, agree with you. And then I can
2: bring what, my
0: knowledge to their feelings. I absolutely agree with you. No, you're a very good person, and I'm sure you deal with good people. And, and I agree that before advising someone, you have to find out. I
2: have to listen.
0: Absolutely, and I can, we agree because I like before I'll dare to advise someone, I really have to feel that I know them, and that, and then it's just advice, it's just saying, well, this is how I see it. What do you think? But yeah, so you're a good person dealing with good people, but there's there's some strange things out there.
4: No weapons mm. <laughs> I think there's just so much concern with how you present whenever you try to advise someone nowadays. There's so much like psychology that goes into it and how to say it because I think people's first notion when they hear it, criticism, they don't want to accept it. There's a lot of self pride, so you want to reject it. So then nowadays there's a whole psychology of how to talk to people because I know even I guess for myself, whenever like uh, even my mom, she wants to. Give me constructive criticism my first thing is say no but and i want to defend myself like so even if I'm, i know inside that i'm wrong i still want to defend myself you know like no I, I, it's automatic i always say no the first response so then i think um like you said it's, it's um on an individual basis we have to be open within ourselves to hear the truth and then that we're wrong yeah because uh, like you said she probably told you like this is the way it is and it wasn't offensive but you were Probably more open-minded and to, you know. to open to change within yourself, which a lot of people aren't. I think that's the problem. Well, closed off. You know, I agree
0: with you and, and with Edie that um, I'm all for technique, like whatever it takes to make the medicine go down. <laughs> How
4: about
3: yeah, just yeah. Loving the person.
0: Enough to listen to love? Yeah, because you have to you have to really care about the person. If you really care, but so I'm all I'm all for technique that'll make it work.
1: <laughs> I don't think
0: love is technique. Well, it's love. Fine. Well, how should I put it? When I love someone, then I take the time and trouble to figure out, to try to think about how to... Because I care about the person, you know? It's because of love you take the time to get to know the person. You really take the time to think about what's the best way to present this. Because, I, I mean, I frankly... When people come to me and say, I just love you, but they don't know anything about me, and they just start talking, it's like, if you love me, then maybe you should love me enough to know who I am. So, I, I think love means that you act in a certain way. It, it, it's, you know, you're, it, it leads you to act appropriately. Mm-hmm. By the way, we're going to serve out the uh, spiritual food, which Indra and her happy. daughter very, very kindly made for us. And so while we're eating, the, if you have any other... Uh, Yeah, yeah, well, let me think about it. Yeah,
1: okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But thank you all for coming. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's a
0: pleasure.